This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who, belie- he who believeth not is not condemned. But he who, excuse me, he who believeth in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are uh, filled with the Spirit in right relationship with the Lord and preparation for the study of His Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity we have this evening to gather together as a body of believers in order to study Your Word. The study of Your Word is the highest form of worship, for in it we learn how to think as You think. We learn the mind of Christ, and we assimilate it into our own souls that uh, our lives can be transformed by Your Word. Father, we thank You that we live in a nation where we have freedom. We thank You that we have had generations before us who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to secure for us these freedoms. And on the basis of these freedoms, we uh, have the opportunity to study Your Word. We have the opportunity to grow and mature as believers. We have the opportunity to uh, witness and to give the gospel to those who are lost. And we have the opportunity to support those who go on the mission field, taking the gospel to other nations. And Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve and protect the freedoms in this nation, that we may be able to continue to study your word, to continue to advance in our own spiritual life, and to continue to take the gospel throughout the world. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study that we may come to a greater appreciation for who our Lord is and His role in our lives during this dispensation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we continue our review while we all get caught up to about the same place in our study of Revelation. There are three sections in Revelation that are really outlined by the 19th verse of the first chapter. In that verse, the Lord is commissioning John to write the things that he has seen. That is the thrust of the section from 1 
9 through the end of the book. It is the commission to John to write the things that he has seen. And in verse 19, the Lord says, Write the things that you have seen, that is, that he has already seen up to that point. The things which are, that is, present tense, and that will be covered in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then third, the things that shall take place after this. And that looks forward to the future, to yet yet unfulfilled prophecy. So we're looking at the first division in Revelation, the first chapter. The things that have been... The things that have been. And so if we're going to outline the chapter, the the first chapter is divided into two sections. There is a prologue in verses 1 through 8. And then there is the commissioning of John to write. And that's in verses 9 through 20. So it breaks down easily into two sections. The first section, the prologue, is a preface. It is a challenge to the readers to listen and respond to the message of the book. This is most clearly seen in the third verse where John says there's a special blessing to those who teach as well as to those who heed the message of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads. The word there in the Greek indicates public reading of Scripture, not just quietly sitting at home, having your morning devotion, reading through the text, but hearing it read publicly, or as we would say today, in exposition, explaining the meaning of the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads, that would be the pastor exegeting and teaching the word, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things that are written. And notice that conjunction. It's not just those who hear it. You're not going to get a blessing simply because you come here on Bible class on Sunday night and hear me teach through the book of Revelation. Only if you respond in your soul positively to the message that is taught. And the basic message in the book of Revelation is really a warning. It is a a challenge to be prepared and a warning that the time is near, which is how this verse ends. Blessed are those who read and those who hear and keep the things that are written in it, for the time is near. We don't know when the Lord's coming back, which is the thrust of this particular book, any more than we know when the Lord's going to take us home. We have to be ready. I remember when I was ordained some 23 years ago or 24 years ago, the pastor said you have to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And for the believer, the message of Revelation is we have to be ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ at a moment's notice. And that is really the thrust of the first four chapters. But the entirety of Revelation deals with this theme of judgment, that one day God is going to judge everyone. Believers are going to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema seat during the tribulation period after the rapture. Unbelievers are going to be judged on the earth through a horrific series of divine judgments known as the Great Tribulation. During that time, many will come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, believe that He died on the cross for their sins, and tens of thousands of Jews will come to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And then at the end of the Tribulation period, there will be a judgment known as the a sheep and goat judgment, a separation of 
uh, believers from unbelievers, uh, unbelieving Gentiles, that is. There's also going to be a judgment on Jews at the end of the tribulation period. That, of course, is followed by the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be another judgment for all unbelievers known as the great white throne judgment. So the key idea throughout Revelation is judgment. It's interesting that in the course of the history of Christianity, two of the most famous sermons, especially in the English language, two of the most famous sermons ever preached were dealt with this whole theme of judgment. R.G. Lee was a Baptist preacher, and at the turn of the last century, he preached a message called Payday Someday. Prior to that, there was a message by Jonathan Edwards, who many think is the greatest of all uh, theologians in American church history and philosopher theologians. Certainly was brilliant, but he was post-millennial, had a number of other problems with his theology as well. But he is well known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the theme of both messages was is judgment. And the Lord used both of those messages to to challenge numerous people to the need for uh, salvation and maturity in their own Christian life. When we come face to face with the reality that one day we will stand before our Lord and everything in our life will be evaluated and the criteria is what we've done with what He has given us at salvation, then it changes our perspective. Unfortunately, when we're young, we usually don't think about the fact that that this is a reality. And as we get a little older, we begin to realize that life really isn't that long, and sooner or later we will be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And that realization in our lives is what we refer to when we talk about living today in light of eternity, starting to make decisions in our life on a day-to-day basis because we know that it won't be long before we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. So the warning at the beginning of Revelation is the time is near. Then the next set of verses, from verses 4 through 8, which we reviewed last Sunday, verses 4 through 8 is a salutation where John addresses the seven churches and designates the ultimate source of the Revelation, the entire 22 chapters, as having its origin in God, in the triune God. And we see that in that verse 4, he says, John, identifying himself as the Apostle John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, that is, the proconsular province in western Turkey, grace to you and peace from, first of all, he who is and who was and who is to come. That is a reference to God the Father. This is not a reference to any other member of the Trinity. And that third phrase, who is to come, is really a reference to the fact that when the new Jerusalem is on the earth and the new heavens and new earth, then we will see God the Father face to face. That has never happened before. The seven spirits who are before His throne is a reference to the full ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is emphasized in this salutation with two sets of triplets. First, he's identified as the faithful witness. This is a reference to his mission during the incarnation, during the uh, time that he was on the earth in public ministry. Second, 
the phrase, the firstborn from the dead, summarizes and encapsulates in one phrase everything that he did on the cross. It refers to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The firstborn from the dead focuses, of course, on the resurrection, but that is the conclusion of the, um, of the process of what took place on the cross in terms of death, burial, and resurrection. Then the third phrase, the ruler over the kings of the earth, and this anticipates his future role when he returns at the second coming to take his rightful place as the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then there's a dedication to him. He is, first of all, he is the one who loves us, present tense. To him who loves us, secondly, he washed us from our sins by means of his own blood, referring to the work of redemption. And then third, and has made us kings and priests to his God. And this is a reference to the end result of sanctification. You see, we have to recognize that that the purpose of salvation isn't simply to end up in heaven. The purpose of salvation is to prepare us as his bride and as his body to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. So from the moment you're saved until you die physically, God is working in your life to prepare you to operate in the messianic administration during the millennial kingdom. Our destiny is to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way we can learn to do that is by going through this process of spiritual growth during our time on the earth. He has made us kings and priests to his God, and we will serve as priests in the millennial kingdom, and we will rule and reign over the angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 teaches that we are going to uh, rule over the angels. Then last time we ended... Just before we got there, ended right at verse 7. Verse 7 talks about this future coming. It is as if the apostle, having talked about Jesus and his future reign, suddenly recognizes that he's coming back. He announces it, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. This phrase that every eye will see him derives from an Old Testament passage, Zechariah 12.10. Zechariah 12.10 reads, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This looks forward, this prophecy in Zechariah 12 looks forward to that time at the end of the tribulation, at the end of that period known as the day of the Lord, when the Messiah comes into his own and establishes his kingdom. It is at that time that there will be a massive revival, a genuine revival, when vast numbers of Jews finally accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
And it is at this time that the Lord says, I will pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. When we look at verse 7, it states that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Now, it's important to pay attention to that phraseology. He is coming with the clouds. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, which is a rapture passage, we're told that at the time of the rapture, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, there's a difference between this phrase, in the clouds, which is a locative concept. It indicates a location in the clouds. And the phrase in verse 7, with the clouds. The phrase with the clouds has tremendous meaning if we understand the the imagery from the Old Testament. There will be a time of tremendous darkness and clouds at the second coming. Let's look at a couple of passages in Revelation. Revelation 14, 14 through 16 specifically, John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. So here is a picture at the end of the tribulation period where John looks and there's this, this white cloud. And on the cloud they're standing the Lord Jesus Christ, designated as the Son of Man, because that picks up that imagery from Daniel chapter 7 that it is the Son of Man who comes and destroys the kingdoms of man at the end of the tribulation and establishes his own kingdom. So there's a direct connection here with Old Testament messianic expectation. I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, that is the temple in heaven in the context, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is just at the end of the tribulation. So he who sat on the cloud, verse 16, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the imagery that is used of that final judgment that leads up to and is and culminates in the battle of Armageddon. The same imagery of the clouds is used by the Lord in Matthew 24, verse 30. There, when he's talking about his return, he said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Notice the Lord used that same designation, Son of Man. Every time you see that designation in the New Testament, you ought to immediately go back to the imagery of Daniel 7. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So once again, clouds are associated with the uh, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are numerous Old Testament passages that reference clouds, but perhaps the most significant are Joel 2, verses 1 and 2, 
and Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15. These, these two passages describe the coming of the Lord in judgment as a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of distress, darkness, gloominess, clouds, and thick darkness. And it is in the midst of this dramatic scene that the Lord comes with the clouds and He comes for the purpose of executing judgment. Now, this is the picture. We start off with verses 1 through 3 in the introduction. And uh, John ends with saying, For the time is near. This is a warning. Believer, prepare yourself. Then he begins a salutation. He addresses it to the seven churches that are in Asia. He gives the salutation from the Father, from the, from the Holy Spirit, and then from the Son. And when he comes to the Son, he ends with this focus on his coming with the clouds for judgment. Everything that we see in this first chapter just drips with this judgment idea. Jesus Christ is coming to judge. This isn't just a picture of Jesus Christ in His glory and in His power. But it's setting us up in the first chapter for what Jesus Christ is going to do in relationship to local churches in chapters 2 and 3. There is judgment, not just coming, but there is ongoing judgment on the church during the church age. He is constantly working to purify the church and to prepare believers today for that future responsibility to rule and reign with Him. So as we read through this, always think in terms of judgment. This is the imagery. It just drips with it. Then we come to verse 8. Now we have to do a little technical work here in the 8th verse, and we will in the ninth verse as well. Uh, due to the fact that there are some problems that occurred in the transmission of the text over time. It's not that we don't have the original. It's that as you copy manuscripts down through time, sometimes scribes uh, inadvertently insert things. Sometimes a scribe will write a commentary or note on, in the margin, and then the next one that copies that manuscript inserts it. And the study of comparing Ancient manuscripts is known as textual criticism, and it's practiced for everything. Any, any ancient document, whether you're studying Caesar, whether you're studying Homer, whether you're studying Shakespeare, or whether you're studying someone like Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure or some uh, theologian in the Middle Ages, there are various manuscripts. And you'll always hear some skeptic come along and say, well, you see, there's these various differences. How can you know for sure what the Bible said originally. And if they applied the same criteria to other literature that they applied to the Bible, then we would have to throw away all of Shakespeare, throw away all of Caesar, throw away all of Homer, throw away everything else in the ancient world. Because many of the ancient documents that we have, Herodotus, Thucydides, Caesar, are based on just one or two, or in some cases a dozen or fifteen copies that date to within only uh, 800 or 1,000 years of the original. And we just have a few manuscripts. And in some cases, only one manuscript that may have survived uh, or may be dated to about the 9th or 10th century A.D. But when it comes to the New Testament, we have over 5,000 
manuscripts. Now, it's very easy to compare manuscripts that you have in order to reconstruct the original. If I were to... If I were to read a passage of Scripture to you and have everyone take out their notebook and write down what I said, there would be some mistakes. Some of you would miss a word. Some of you would add something. Some of you would uh, uh, maybe um, uh, misspell a few words. And then when we got done, let's say the original was lost. And all we have is these copies. Many of you would have exact copies. By taking 70 or 80 different copies we could easily reconstruct the original. wouldn't be hard. We would easily be able to discover the errors that entered in. It's, it's not rocket science. It can get very difficult and complicated because you enter into all kinds of probabilities and other things that come along, but it's pretty easy to reconstruct the original. What we have in this particular verse are some both additions and deletions. And if you're working with the King James or New King James, you'll notice that it varies a lot from the what you'd find in New American Standard or NIV. I made a point last week when I was explaining this that there's two views on how to work through textual problems. One is the assumption that what's in the older manuscripts is best. The other view is that the majority... Uh, that which is read in the majority of manuscripts is most likely the uh, the correct reading. Now, I'm really simplifying this. It, it's, it's much more complicated than that, but that's a pretty simple way to cover it for our purposes. The interesting thing is both the majority and, and, and these differences that we find in Revelation 1, and there's a number of them in Revelation 1, which is what makes the exegesis of this chapter so challenging. A number of these differences are, are actually the older manuscripts and the majority of manuscripts agree. It was that small collection of eight or nine manuscripts that, was, that made up the Textus Receptus or the received text that was the basis for the King James translation where you have a problem. So what you have in Revelation 1.8, if you read it in King James or New King James, it reads, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. But when you compare it with the, both the majority of manuscripts as well as the older manuscripts, the phrase, the beginning and the end, isn't there. And the, the word God is present. Now, why is that important? The reason it's important is because for generations... You had scholars studying, and in many cases they didn't know the original language, or if they did, they just had the Textus Receptus. They're studying in the original, and they came to some definite conclusions about who was speaking here in Revelation 1.8. And their conclusion was that this was the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many people, when they read this, and they see that title, the Alpha and the Omega, they immediately identify that as the Lord Jesus Christ. But once you factor out the phrases, the phrase, the beginning and the end, which is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you recognize that the uh, most accurate early manuscripts would have had Lord God, not simply Lord, then it becomes clear that the person who is speaking here is God the Father, not God the Son. 
And the phrase Lord God is a is used almost exclusively in the Scripture to refer to God the Father. The phrase in the Greek for Lord God is kurios hatheos, and it's used only ten times in the New Testament, only one of which is outside the book of Revelation, and that's in Luke one thirty-two, which reads, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So it's clear from the context, who does Lord God refer to there? It's got to refer to the Father because it's talking about the Son. So the phrase Lord God in Luke, at least, refers to God the Father. If you go through and examine other uses of it in the book of Revelation, it is also clear that it's a phrase that refers to God the Father, especially when it is used in conjunction with the term the Almighty. And again and again in Revelation you have God the Father referred to as the Almighty. For, for example, in Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures sing to the one on the throne who is God the Father, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. See the same scenario in Revelation 11.17. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Again, that same phraseology, that same description that we had back in verse 4. For God the Father. Revelation 15.3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Notice a distinction in that verse between the Lamb, on the one hand, who is the second person of the Trinity, and the Lord God Almighty. And another passage where it's also clear is in Revelation 16.7. The point is that what we have in verse 8 is a statement from God the Father. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Now that phrase is also applied to the Lord Jesus Christ later in Revelation. But only once does it refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a phrase for eternity. It is a descriptive image of eternity. Alpha being the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega being the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And it was a phrase indicating eternality, the beginning and the end. You don't have to repeat that phrase. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So we have three descriptive titles here. Alpha and Omega. It's clearly applied. If you trace it out through Revelation, it's always applied to the Father until the last use. Who is, Lord God always refers to the Father. Who is and who was and who is to come, again, is only applied to the Father. And then the phrase, the Almighty, is only applied to the Father, which makes it clear that this is a statement from the Father. So now we have to answer the question, Why, suddenly, at the end of this section, do we have this insertion, almost an interjection, from the Father? And it is, as it were, a statement of authenticity. A statement of authenticity. We have the salutation beginning in verse 4 and extending down to verse 7, and then the Father gives His stamp of authority on this message. Remember back in verse 1. The first verse begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ, 
which God gave him, that is Jesus Christ. So you have the origin, the ultimate origin of the book of Revelation coming from God the Father. God the Father gives this body of information to the Son, and the Son then discloses it or reveals it to His servants. And at the end of this opening introduction, this prologue, God the Father puts His stamp of authentication on this message. It comes from the throne of the Lord God Almighty. So we are to pay particularly close attention to it. Then we come to the next section, verse 9. Verse 9 down through the end of the, of the chapter can just basically be summarized as a divine commission to John to write. That's, if you think about the verbs, if you think about the verbs in verse 9, John says, I was on the island that is called Patmos. I heard a loud voice behind me saying to write, a command to write. That command to write is reiterated down in verse 18 and 19. He says, I was on the island, stated verb, I was on the island that is called Patmos. I heard a a loud voice behind me, it's of a trumpet. I turned to look at the voice, and I saw. And then you have a lengthy description of what he saw, and it concludes with the fact that that in all this actually took just about two or three seconds. It is a dramatic scene. John is just quietly sitting on Patmos, looking over the uh, Aegean Sea, enjoying the view, and all of a sudden, thinking about the Lord, and all of a sudden, he's in the Spirit, which is a phrase, a term that is used uniquely in Revelation for being in a state to receive revelation. It's not the same as being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not a revelatory state. But every time we have this phrase, I was in the Spirit, John receives revelation. He has given these visions. That is completely different from what you and I or any other believer in the church age experiences when we're filled with the Spirit. So John is in a unique position. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Again, he will say, uh, that he is in the Spirit when we come to Revelation chapter 4, and that's when he is transported into heaven and he sees what is going on around the throne of, of God when he gets to heaven. So in verse 9, he identifies himself again. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ. And this, again, is a phrase, a verse that needs a little uh, tweaking because of some textual problems. It should not be handled, uh, John, both your brothers, just I, John, your brother and companion. And then we have an interesting, an interesting uh, phraseology here known as a, a hendiatris. Hendiatris, that's spelled H-E-N-D-I-A-T-R-I-S. Now you have heard of a figure of speech known as a hendiadis. Okay, that is when you take two words and you link them together with a conjugation in such a way that both of them describe the same thing. For example, a pastor-teacher. That's a hendiadis. But the D-Y-S at the end is two words. 
This is when you have three words linked by conjunctions, and they all refer to basically the same thing. They're viewed as a tight unit. And we should translate this, not tribulation, because that has overtones of the great tribulation. It's simply the word for ongoing adversity in the believer's life. Both your brother and companion, see, pastors and apostles weren't any different from any other believer. We have to go through adversity to grow. And in the midst of adversity, we learn to trust God. And when you continue to apply doctrine day in and day out, that's called endurance. And you can't grow or advance in the spiritual life without endurance, without hanging in there, without applying the Word consistently over a long period of time. And that's the third word that we have in this, in this triplet here. We have the word tribulation, uh, which indicates the uh, adversity in the spiritual life from the Greek word thlipsis. And then kingdom, because that's what we're being prepared for. And then the third word, endurance, the word hupa manes, which has the basic idea of staying under something. That's what endurance is. Endurance isn't, oh, I'm in adversity now. I'm, in a, I'm going through this. Let's figure out a way out because I want life to be easy. I want everything to go smoothly. And I want the, the Lord to, uh, to just bless me. You know, the Lord's not blessing me unless everything's going good. Well, that's your popular conception of the Christian life is that if we're doing everything right, then it's going to be easy. But in the Christian life, when we're doing everything right, it may get very difficult. We may go through a lot of, of adversity, testing, in order to give us the opportunity to utilize the stress busters, the problem-solving devices, so that we can grow and advance in our spiritual life. That's the only way we can grow, according to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where we're told to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? various trials, causal adverbial participle, because you know that the testing of your faith, that is your doctrine, produces endurance, hupomenes, produces endurance, and let endurance have its maturing consequence that you may be mature and sufficient in all things. I hate to tell you and burst your bubble, but if you're going to grow to maturity in the spiritual life, you have to go through a lot of adversity. And the key to passing those tests is endurance. And the end result is that this is all headed to preparation for the kingdom. So it should be in tra- translated with, with hyphens. I would translate it adversity, kingdom, endurance. It's one idea. This is all interconnected. That's the, the impact of the syntax here. In the, uh, John is our brother and companion in the adversity kingdom endurance of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I was on the island that is called Patmos, literally because of the Word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he has been uh, sentenced to uh, prison, as it were, on the island of Patmos. He is... Uh, not under house arrest there. He, ha- he can walk all over the island, and it's quite roomy. As we see here, this is a picture coming into the harbor. It's kind of horseshoe-shaped, and the low level, uh, the lower level here on the left is at the center of the horseshoe. That's where the main harbor is. But John had uh, 
full access to the entire island. And so he was walking around on the Lord's Day, and he sat down at some point, and church tradition says that it was in this area. And there is a cave here under the building where the uh, Greek Orthodox have built a chapel. And it is in that cave that allegedly he had his vision uh, in Revelation chapter 1. Now, we don't know that. It could have been anywhere, but that's the, that's the legend. And this is another look at the uh, building built over the cave where John allegedly had the vision. I tend to think he was probably just enjoying the beautiful view. And then suddenly, instead of looking at that gorgeous blue Aegean Sea, he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Probably blasted him right out of his seat. And the voice said, and here we have another textual problem. See, that you just have to spend so much time dealing with the textual issues here. In the King James and New King James, it seems to indicate again that, well, this is Jesus speaking, and so Alpha and the Omega, we just saw that a couple of verses earlier, so that would be Jesus. But see, that was inserted later. It's not in most of the manuscripts, not in the older manuscripts, it's not in the majority text. So just scratch out, if you've got a King James or New King James, just scratch out, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He hears a loud voice saying, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And again, it doesn't repeat that are in Asia. That's already been stated earlier. And then the seven churches are identified to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, the point that I want to emphasize here is that he is to take everything he sees and write it in what? A book. And he is going to send that book to the seven churches. Now, when we get to chapter 2 and 3, there are going to be seven little postcards to these, to these churches. But don't get the idea that they're sent individually. It's the whole book that is sent. When John got the original revelation, he wrote it down, made seven copies. Those seven copies of the totality of Revelation from 1 to 22 are sent to each church. So the, each congregation would have a copy of the entire Revelation. And then he turns, having heard this voice, he turns to see the voice that spoke with him. And when he turns, he begins to describe for us what he saw. Now, it takes several verses to describe what he saw, but it hit his consciousness immediately. But it takes some time to describe it. But in reality, all of this takes place in just a few seconds. He turns, he sees, and as he is hit with what he sees, he falls on his face, much as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 and many others in the Scripture. When they come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory, they fall on their face. Now, let's just summarize this. just want to summarize the... There are ten different or 11 different figures that are used in the imagery here. 11 different figures used in the imagery. And you've gone through them in detail, at least those who've gone through the tapes already, have gone through these in detail. So let's just 
hit the high, high spots there. First of all, he saw seven golden lampstands. In verse 20, we're told that those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Those seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, in the Old Testament, a lampstand, the lampstand that you had in the tabernacle and the temple was one lampstand that had seven distinct bowls. That one lampstand represented the unity of the nation Israel. But here, you don't have one lampstand. You have seven distinct lampstands. And they represent the function of each congregation as being a light to the world. So in the present dispensation, the church is the means of distribution of the light of revelation and truth. The seven lampstands represent the completeness of the provision of the church. The church is sufficient to the task. The seven individual lampstands represent the idea that the church is not a unified nation like Israel. We are one in the body of Christ, but the lampstands represent autonomous congregations. Then the next thing that we see here is the man-like figure, one like the Son of Man. And this, of course, picks up the imagery from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And Daniel, who at the time was a analogous to a prime minister, prime minister or secretary of state in the uh, Babylonian Empire, was involved in daily political developments. And during that time, God gave him uh, various revelations that related to future times. For example, you had the uh, explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, where you saw Nebuchadnezzar saw the tremendous image that was really an outline of human history. And there it pictured the kingdoms of man as man sees them. It's this beautiful image with the head of gold and the torso of silver and the, the uh, waist of, uh, of bronze. And this is, is how man looks at man's kingdoms. We look at Rome and Greece and all these great empires in terms of how much they accomplished. But Daniel chapter 7 looks at these in terms of God's perspective. The empires of man are represented as beasts because they are not fulfilling God's intention for man, but all the political empires of history are represented as beastly. See, we have a high view of the uh, what the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans and the Greeks, Greeks accomplished, but God doesn't because those were pagan empires. And so he looks at them from a different vantage point. And so we see these four beasts, the uh, lion representing the Babylonian Empire, the uh, bear representing the Medes and the Persians, the four-headed leopard that represents the Greek Empire, and then the indescribable beast that had the ten horns, and that's the Roman Empire and then the revived Roman Empire. And at the end of time, the, these empires are going to be destroyed and replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ, who's referenced as the Son of Man, because in His reign He represents true humanity. And so Daniel says in verse 9 of chapter 7, I kept looking, 
until the thrones were set up. This is after the destruction of these kingdoms. Until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. This is a picture of the throne room of God that is not unlike that of Revelation chapter 4. We'll make those comparisons when we get there. Uh, Thousands upon thousands were attending him. These would be the myriads upon myriads of angels referenced in Revelation 4. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So it's a picture of judgment. And then Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So this picture of judgment takes place at the end of the tribulation and is a heavenly scene where the kingdom is now given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't have a kingdom until then. He has the title king, but it isn't activated until the end of the tribulation. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when we think of John's use of the Son of Man, he is thinking of it in this messianic sense. And it is at this point that judgment responsibility is delegated to the Son from the Father. John 5.22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now this introduces this aspect that is so crucial to understanding Revelation 1, that it's picturing Jesus not as the priest intercessor, which is what we get out of, out of uh, Hebrews, but it is a picture of Jesus as the priest judge. And the whole picture here reinforces this. The third aspect, he's he's clothed with a garment down to the feet. And the term used in the Greek here for down to the feet is poderis, which comes out of an Old Testament context, and it's used as the robe of the high priest. So that would remind the reader, who's knowledgeable of the Old Testament, of a priestly garment. In Ezekiel 9.11, this word is used to describe the clothing of the man with the ink horn in a scene that is dealing again with the idea of judgment. So the long robe represents the office held by the one wearing the robe. He's girded about with a golden band. This, is, uh, this same idea is present in Daniel 10, verse 5, where Daniel says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. It's a picture of someone who is in a, uh, a high office. It pictures someone of royal dignity. So Jesus is pictured here as someone with a high office and royal dignity. It, it is an image that speaks of, of a, uh, someone who's a judge, someone who's a priest. Fifth, he's described as having white hair, white like wool, as white as snow. And again... It picks up imagery from the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Well, you can understand some things, but every dimension of of this description and what Jesus says at the end 
is based on Old Testament prophecy. Jesus, the, Revelation is the culmination of everything that is said in the Old Testament plus prophecies in the New Testament. And you can't just jump into this and start, oh, I'm going to interpret this any way I want to and just say, uh, just start grabbing at, at uh, metaphorical images to figure out what it says. The white hair is a reminder of Daniel 7, 9, the Ancient of Days, whose vesture was like white snow, and the head of his hair was like pure wool. It is identifying the Son here with that judicial role of the Father described in Daniel 7, verse 9. The, the whiteness emphasizes purity. Remember, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. This is a picture of the, his, the integrity that God has in judgment. The sixth image in verse 14 states that uh, the Son of Man had eyes like fire. This is referenced later in the letter to Thyatira, where there will be a reference to the one whose eyes whose fl- uh, were like flames of fire. This again has a, an Old Testament background. Daniel 10.6 talks about the one whose body was like barrel, his face like lightning, his eyes like a torches of fire. It speaks of purity, judgment, insight, and omniscience. Seventh, the feet are refined, shining metal. The Greek word here is kalibanon, kalibanon, which is not found anywhere else. This is the only time we have this word. We don't know what it means. Is it bronze? Is it brass? Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it platinum? We don't know. It is a kind of metal that is bright and shining. Again, you have this image of purity, something that is so bright that you want to shield your eyes. And, of course, this speaks of something that has been refined in a fiery furnace, so it is pure. Therefore, it speaks of the qualifications of the one who judges. The eighth uh, image that we have here is that his voice is like the sound of many waters. It's loud. It's, it's overwhelming. If you've ever stood uh, at the shore uh, where, by the Niagara Falls, you can't hear yourself think. That's the sound of the voice. It is overwhelming. This, too, has a basis in Old Testament. A quote from Ezekiel 43, verse 2. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice, that is the voice of God, was like the sound of many waters. Ninth, he has seven stars in his right hand. Notice there's a distinction here, which we'll come back to, between the stars in his right hand and the churches that he's walking in the midst of. They're distinct. So he has these seven stars in his right hand who are later described in verse 20 as the seven angels of the seven churches. And the tenth observation is that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And this is the uh, Greek word romphia, a sword that was used in judgment. Revelation 19.15, when Jesus returns, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, a romphia, that he should strike the nations. So this is not the machaira used of the, the Word of God, but the rompia which is used for judgment. Also in Revelation 19.21, the rest were killed with the sword, with the rompia, which proceeded from his mouth. So the picture here is of someone coming in judgment. Then eleventh, his countenance is like the brilliance 
of the sun. This summarizes the whole image, the white hair, the shining uh, feet and legs, everything. His countenance is like the brilliance of the sun. It's overwhelming. And as a result, when John sees him, he falls at his feet as if dead. Revelation 1.17, I fell at his feet as de- like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And here we see three things that Jesus says which indicate his person. First of all, he says, I am the first and the last. Again, phraseology that comes out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, verse 6, which you can compare with Isaiah 48, verse 12. There Isaiah hears the voice of God saying, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So Jesus is identifying himself as full deity. See, we live in an age today when people want to challenge this notion about the deity of Christ. He's not really God. That was a notion that was dreamed up by Constantine in the 4th century, 325 A.D. It was imposed on the ecclesiastical hierarchy that met at Nicaea. See, this is the garbage that's promoted in the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, who doesn't know anything about history and knows even less about theology. But he has an agenda. And the agenda is to attack Christianity with numerous lies so that he can discredit it because he has a hatred for biblical Christianity. And people love it. They're buying the book uh, by the droves. At the last count, 8 million hardback copies. This has got to be some kind of publishing record. But the claim is that the church imposed deity on Christ at a later date. But here you have clear evidence from, from Revelation that is dated in 95 A.D. that the church from the very beginning, in fact, Jesus himself claimed to be deity. This isn't something that was added later on. The Old Testament anticipated a divine Savior. Second, he says, I am the living one. This has Old Testament roots as well. Joshua 3.10, Psalm 42.2, and Hosea 1.10. In the Old Testament, God is characteristically described as the living God in contrast to the uh, pagan idols of wood and stone and metal. And then third, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and of Hades. The rabbis had a saying that there were three keys which belonged to God and which he would share with no other. The keys of birth, the keys of rain, and the keys of raising the dead. The statement, I have the keys of death and of Hades, is a metaphor for saying, I have power over death, because Jesus Christ conquered death in the resurrection. And the only way that we can conquer death is to be identified with Christ. And that comes when we put our faith alone in Christ alone. The point that we see here is that throughout this imagery, the book of Revelation clearly portrays Jesus as fully divine. He is fully God, eternal God. He is identified closely with the God of the Old Testament. He's identified closely with God the Father, and He is the one who is qualified to judge us because He was one who uh, was incarnate on the earth. He went through all the sufferings, every category of suffering and testing, temptation, just like us, And yet he passed the test. 
And so when he judges us, we're not judged by someone who, uh, someone who uh, hasn't gone through what we've gone through. We can't say, well, you just don't know what it's like, Lord. The Lord's going to say, oh, yeah, but I do. I've been through it all. And so we won't have a leg to stand on. This whole imagery here is a warning to us that one day, someday, we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be an evaluation, not of our sin that was paid for, but positively, what have we done with that spiritual life? What have we done with all those assets that He gave us? What have we done to prepare ourselves for our future ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ? With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by what we see here in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that one day we will stand before his Bema seat, and we will be evaluated on the basis of what we've done. Father, we pray that we might be worthy of the challenge, that we might live in a manner that honors and glorifies what he did on the cross. We also recognize that there may be someone here this evening who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain, to put your faith alone in Christ alone. All you need to do is to form uh, words in your thoughts alone. Say, Father, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. When you believe, when you trust that, when you trust what the Bible says, that Jesus paid the price, At that instant, God the Father knows what you are trusting, and you are saved. That's it. All you need to do is rely exclusively upon Him. Father, we thank You for our opportunity to study Your Word this evening and pray that we would respond positively to the challenge of its teaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.